Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. Ah, <laughs> uh, hello there. How enchanting it is to see you grace the threshold of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop once again. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got an interesting item on display here up on the wall. If you look over here, it is a shadow box lined with a fine white silk. It has a hinged glass front door on the front of it, and if you peer inside, you'll see a collection of various insects on display. This, of course, was curated by a meticulous entomologist put on display to show off a, a variety of species of insects. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, this is just a collection of dead bugs. Haha. <laughs> But therein lies the link to today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new film, There's Something Wrong with the Children. Now, There's Something Wrong with the Children is a movie that I found out about just recently and realized that it had just been released to video on demand here in the United States back on January the 17th. So I thought, All right, I've got to check this out. Where can I find it? Uh, now, I know it does have a release on MGM+, Plus, the former Epic's uh, streaming service, but MGM Plus is going to be releasing this to their streaming service coming up on March 17th. But if you want to watch it right now, it is available video on demand. I happen to watch it on Amazon Prime, so at the very least, you can check it out there. But as soon as I saw the trailer for this this film, I thought, oh, I've got to check this out. This this is the kind of movie that is right up my alley. And it's directed by a, a director, Roxanne Benjamin. Uh, you may know her from some various projects, of course. Uh, she directed Body at Brighton Rock. Uh, she was also a part of the production team producing VHS and VHS 2. But as far as directing goes, this is her, her second big feature film. So I was interested to see, given her work with the, the early VHS films uh, and Body of Brighton Rock, I thought, okay, I, I can't wait to see what she's going to bring to the table with this subject matter. And the whole basis of this story is, are these two people, two couples, uh, as a matter of fact. You have Margaret and Ben. They're on a weekend trip with their friend Ellie and Thomas. And Ellie and Thomas have two uh, children that are coming along. And they're out on this, I, I've heard it described as glamping. They're camping, but it's in these luxurious plush cabins. Uh, but they're, they're off having a good time. Uh, of course, Ellie and Thomas... It's kind of set up that they got married right out of college or not long out of college, had kids right away, and started a family. But all necessarily isn't well in their world. Whereas you have Margaret and Ben, who everything seems to be going good, but they're they're holding off on parenthood. In spite of the pressures that society and more even families put on other family members who are, you know, in their 30s, you can usually kind of start starts in your 30s. When are you going to start a family? When are you going to have kids? And and they're kind of uh, bucking that trend and just 
kind of taking their time. They don't feel they're ready. They're working on their careers right now. But then we also find that there may be other reasons why they haven't started a family. But you have these two couples uh, with the one couple's kids out camping. And after a long hike, they discover these old ruins. Now, they're a little more modern ruins. I, I found the structure that this all takes place in quite fascinating because it is a large quasi-modern structure. I mean, it's not ancient by any means, but it's something that's been abandoned for a very long time. It kind of reminds me of some of those urban adventurers that go uh, checking out abandoned amusement parks that are all overgrown and, and the earth is kind of reclaiming them. It felt like one of those, but this, this structure feels like early 1900s, but it's abandoned, it's overgrown. It almost reminds me of some of those uh, munitions storage facilities uh, from back around World War II where, you know, they build these big cement structures uh, to house munitions, you know, for the war effort, only on a grander scale. Uh, but they find this uh, structure in the, the middle of nowhere in the woods. It's all overgrown. Uh, there are places where you can get inside of it, and they go exploring inside this big structure. And it almost feels like a cave, but only, like I said, made of bricks. It's man-made. But then you find some, some situations where the walls have been torn away. The brick walls have been have come down and there is a, a passage into an area that there is a big pit in the ground and they're checking it out. They're trying to keep the kids away from it, uh, but the kids are fascinated by it there. They keep talking about uh, the place that shines, calling it the place that shines. Of course, Ellie and Thomas's kids are bilingual, so they speak a lot of Spanish because their father uh, is Hispanic and they use that term in, in Spanish, the place that shines. And it just uh, automatically brought me to Stephen King places, but that has nothing to do with this. But they're really fascinated by this. And, of course, they want to get the kids away from there so nobody falls in. Uh, Ellie and Thomas, especially Ellie, seems a little overprotective of the kids. But they leave and we find that the kids want to keep going back there. And that really kind of is the launching off point for this story. Now, we're going to talk about the different characters, their place in the story, and, and how things progress from there. And one of the first things I noticed are the, the two leads in this. You have Alicia Wainwright as Margaret and Zach Guilford as Ben. And Alicia Wainwright as Margaret, I recognized her right away because she played the mother in Raising Dion, that series that was on Netflix that actually was just canceled this past year. Uh, unfortunately, because I really enjoyed uh, Alicia Wainwright as the mother in that. She's in a relationship with Ben, played by Zach Guilford. I, I don't know whether, whether it's ever stated if they're married or not. But they're in a long-term committed relationship. Uh, I'm assuming they're married. But she and Zach Guilford's Ben, uh, I, I can't talk about one without talking about the other because I really enjoyed the chemistry between these two. Uh, they really felt like they got along great. Uh, they really felt like a couple to me. Uh, a couple that are, are just good people trying to, you know, trying to, to get along in the world, trying to, to make something of their lives, trying to, like I said, focus on their careers. Uh, but they love each other. They support each other. Uh, it's even kind of hinted at that 
Ben may have had some sort of psychotic episode, some sort of mental health issue, and it's caused him to lose some jobs. And But, you know, she's there to help him, support him, and it's just a very loving relationship that we find put to the test later on in the movie. But I really liked Alicia Wainwright as Margaret because she does kind of have that very fun-loving, she seems like a very easy person to talk to. I'm sure it's a part of her regular persona, but, but she even portrays that very friendly, very caring quality. I think that's probably why she is cast as a mother in a lot of, of series and things like that. There's a very nurturing quality to her. And Zach Guilford, I, I think in the same token, uh, he out of all of the cast members is the only one that is actually a parent. And he kind of has that quality. He's really good with Thomas and Ellie's kids, you know, trying to teach the one kid, uh, Spencer, how to juggle with these stick things. And, and he feels like the cool uncle that would probably be a good dad if the circumstances were right. And I really liked his portrayal. I, I know some people thought his portrayal was a little bland, but I, I liked it because it didn't have to be over the top. I don't know what people were expecting. I don't know what people were looking for out of this, this character and this performance because it, it, it's not an over-the-top performance. It's very, it's very everyday. And that's what I want. That's what you want from a, from a character that is kind of set up as the protagonist at the beginning of this. You want the everyman. You want a guy who's just an everyday guy that you can relate to. And I think Zach Guilford really pulled that off quite well. He did it in Midnight Mass. He did it in uh, The Midnight Club, a couple Mike Flanagan projects that he was a part of. And I, I probably should have warned you ahead of time that there are going to be spoilers in this. So if you haven't watched There's Something Wrong with the Children, uh, you really need to, to watch this before you continue on. Because uh, I am going to talk about some spoilery things. Uh, so, so go watch it. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. But from here on out, I, I am going to talk about some spoilery things. And one of those things pertains to the Zach Guilford Ben character. Because one of the things I found really interesting interesting about this story is the fact that they kind of flip the script in in a lot of uh horror movies essentially you get a female character and it was probably one of the only complaints i had about the the movie the watcher is that it just kind of played into that trope that we've seen time and again where the woman has something happen to her she's experiencing something and then she goes from zero to 60 in the off the hinges department the woman goes off the hinges and then everybody thinks she's just batshit crazy and nobody believes her and they kind of flipped the script on this and gave the ben character that arc where he's got a history of mental health issues and so it's easier for people not to believe when he starts seeing things that they feel are not there but he's obviously seeing these things and he goes from and i i think i heard other people talking about he didn't take it far enough they didn't take it far enough with him but you didn't want him going crazy you didn't want him going all jack torrance in the middle of this this two, you know, couples, uh, one of them a family, their fun adventure camping. You don't want him going that far with this, but you want him to, to really see things starting to come off the hinges a little bit. And I, I think Zach Guilford did that really well, that I don't know what I'm seeing, but I'm seeing something, something's going on. I can't let myself 
just fully break down because I do have a history with mental health and people are going to point the finger at me and they're going to point the finger at that. So I got to try and keep my shit together. Uh, he played that very well, but, but he played that trope where he's kind of seeing things and going off the hinges and starting to go a little crazy and nobody believes him. And I found it interesting that they gave that to him and where, you know, in a different movie, it probably would have been the Alicia Wainwright character that they did that to. And like I said, they've done that with female characters uh, time and again. Uh, I thought it was interesting to do that with a male character this time. Made this uh, uh, for a movie that didn't reinvent the wheel or anything like that. It did enough things uh, different, uh, subverting tropes, uh, that I, I found that quite compelling aspect of this. Now, the two other characters, Ellie and Thomas, played by Amanda Crew and Carlos Santos, uh, I, I really enjoyed them as a couple because they were, they were very interesting. Interesting. Now, Carlos Santos, I, I know he's been in a ton of things, just not a ton of stuff I've watched or are are familiar with. Now, Amanda Cruz, she's been in, in several things like uh, Final Destination 3. She was in The Haunting in Connecticut, The Age of Adeline. She's uh, been in several things that, that you've probably seen before. And I really dug these two their performances, but I also dug them as a couple because they really had a, an interesting thing because as this whole movie starts off, uh, there's just a coldness between the two of these characters. Uh, Ellie is nitpicking at Thomas. Thomas is short with Ellie, doesn't want her help, doesn't want her around. And we find out through a conversation between Ellie and Margaret that... <laughs> Ellie and Thomas tried to have a foursome, uh, some sort of swinging deal where they're all in a room. Ellie and a guy friend are on the bed. The guy friend's wife and Thomas are over in a chair and things are getting amorous. But it turns out that Ellie and the guy friend are the only ones getting down. <laughs> And, and of course, that made Thomas uncomfortable after the fact, and it just put a strain on their relationship. And I guess maybe even more so than the visit to the cave and this hole, the place that shines, even more so than that, uh, what happens next is really the impetus of, of where things launch into the next phase of this movie, because uh, Margot and Ben, they offer to have the two kids, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, spend the night while Ellie and Thomas can rekindle the romance back at their own cabin. And as they're all kind of hanging out, Margot and Ben and the two kids, Lucy and Spencer, uh, playing games, talking, the kids keep talking about they're they're fascinated with this this hole in the ground at this old structure that they they were adventuring in and investigating earlier in the day and they want to go back and you know Margot and Ben don't think that's a good idea and but the kids are already starting to act weird uh, they seem just in, enthralled with this place and almost drawn to going back and the next morning Margot and Ben wake up and find out that the kids are not there and Ben runs back to this place because he remembers that they wanted to go there and sees them standing at the edge of the precipice of this this hole and watches them just kind of fall forward into it. Now, one of the things I thought was 
I think don't I don't think it was handled quite as well is later on when he's explaining what happens, he claims to Margot that he saw the kids lying at the bottom of this of this pit. And they never show that. And and I guess it was probably part and parcel a way to kind of cast doubt on whether he really did see it or not. If we saw it, then he must have seen it. And it's supposed to uh, I guess put some doubt in our mind as to whether he is seeing what he thinks he is seeing. But we already know the title of the movies. There's something wrong with the children. We already know that there's going to be something off and that it won't be just in his head. And as we experience the rest of the movie and all the weird things that happen with the kids, we know it's not just in his head. So I, I don't think it would have hurt to show the kids lying dead in the bottom of this pit and then all of a sudden when he gets back to camp they're there and they're running around playing and acting normal like nothing is wrong Uh, I, i don't think that would have subverted any of the tension and the weirdness. I think it would have actually been a a little more of a validation. Uh, We're not questioning whether Ben is, is crazy or not. We're not questioning whether he's seeing the things that he's seeing or not. You either go one way or the other. Either draw this movie out a little longer, because this is only an hour and a half movie. I really think it could have handled to have like 10 more minutes to this movie. 10-15 more minutes. Uh, where you could play out the suspense of, is he or isn't he crazy? I don't think they take enough time to dwell on that, to make that effective. And they didn't really submit that he he isn't seeing things. He's they still it feels like they're trying to play off that maybe he's crazy, maybe he's not. Maybe he's seeing things, maybe he's not. And, and I don't think it was effective that way because you really missed out on some some very unsettling scenes that would have validated that he's not seeing things. But you're teeter on trying to to play this mystery that's just not there. So talking about the kids, Lucy and Spencer. Lucy's played by Briella Giza. You've probably seen her. She's actually been in a few things. She's been in that uh, TV series, The Terminalist. She was in a movie that came out last year, Ambulance. She's been in a few other things. Uh, So you may be familiar with her. I I thought she looked very familiar. I haven't watched anything she's been in, but I've, I've seen the face. And then, of course, Spencer is played by uh, David Mattel and not very familiar with him or anything he's been in. But but both of these kids, uh, Briella Giza and David Mattel, uh, play Lucy and Spencer. Lucy's the older sister. Spencer's the younger brother. And wow, did they, they do a good job. I, I really enjoyed their performance. A- at some points, it seemed a little kid acty. But then at other points, especially when they got into the creepy things they really did a good job with with playing that. Uh, you know, the kids running around, it kind of seemed a little over the top at times, running around, goofing around, playing. Uh, but they did a good job with it. Like I said, it just felt a little over the top at times. But when they came back from the pit, and you don't really know, is it them, a doppelganger? Is it something wearing their skin? You're never really quite sure. And they never really completely explain it. Uh, Although they do give you some hints as to what's going on later in the movie. But I really loved the whole 
episode after they come back from the pit between there and when you get into the third and final act and all the shit's going down it's kind of a cat and mouse game between these two kids and ben because ben saw them fall into that pit ben knows they should be dead and nobody else does so they kind of key on on him and and i really loved it how it was kind of that kids game that kids play with each other where nobody else is paying attention to you uh usually do it to a, a younger sibling or something like that you're pretending that you're going to do something really bad and the younger brother or sister starts freaking out and look what he's doing he's doing and then you you stop doing what you're doing and everybody's everybody's like they're not doing anything kind of a gaslighting situation Uh, they're doing this to ben kind of that situation when you're in the car and you you put your finger up to your little brother or sister's shoulder and and you're just like millimeters away from touching them (laughs) and and your your younger sibling starts freaking out he's touching me and you move your hand back real quick so before mom turns around and and I'm not doing anything. It's that sort of situation, that sort of cat and mouse game between Lucy and Spencer and Ben. And there's some really creepy scenes where Ben goes up and talks to them and they just give very cryptic and odd answers. The mention of dead bugs uh, is very telling, but very cryptic. They also have this special language they use to talk. It's very chittery and clicky, almost insectile. That's, that's very creepy and bizarre. The looks and smirks they give are very creepy and and add a, a bit of tension because you, you don't know what's going on, but you know there's something going on and you're just trying to, to make sense and connect the dots and connect the uh, sinew of, of these muscles and, and hoping that they'll flex into something that you can wrap your mind around and it never really comes to that. And it, it like I said, it adds a, such a, a great amount of tension to this story that I found that wonderful to watch. The second act really culminates with this scene where uh, the kids, Spencer and Lucy, are confronting Ben in the house. And Spencer puts this big like gumball or or jawbreaker in his mouth and and he starts fighting with uh with ben over this shovel for the fireplace until he swallows this gumball or this this jawbreaker and chokes to death and of course lucy is pointing the finger at ben when everyone's asking what happened and then that's where everyone turns on ben he has been the protagonist this whole time he has been the, the guy that is going to be our hero, and he's just been fingered as the one that killed this little boy. And of course, Thomas and Ellie are livid at him, want him to get out. Uh, Thomas doing everything he can to, to not, you know, pummel him. Uh, you even have Margaret, who is his wife or, or at least girlfriend, his partner, and she's been so loving and caring and supportive, but doesn't even ask him what happened. She just thinks that, um, you know, because up to this point, there have been moments where he has accused the kids of doing something, and they've done that thing where they pull their hands back, and I'm not doing anything. Uh, I'm just sitting here, you know, picking flowers. And 
and he's had this uh, this gaslight effect on him and everybody else has had this sort of gaslight effect on them where they've been made to not think that they're crazy but made to think that Ben is crazy and Margot just assumes that he is having another mental episode like he did prior to this movie happening doesn't even ask him what happened doesn't even ask his side of the story and just automatically assumes that he's going crazy and and that's where you really see things turn in this movie. And and I suppose this should be because they have been playing this, is he or isn't he crazy, but not doing it quite well enough to, to make you question. You know he's not crazy. Uh, if they would have played that a little more, this could have been a, a stronger scene because, oh my God, this kid is really dead because he's having the psychotic break. And the realism of that really could have taken hold and sunk in. But they were so kind of loosey-goosey with the mystery of is he or isn't he crazy that you know he's not really dead or that he's going to come back because there is something really wrong with this kid. And Ben runs off to that hole to to investigate, to take Margot out there. The kids are, aren't at the bottom of the, the well or this big hole. He sticks around, stays there, essentially losing touch with reality, losing his grip on reality. And it's kind of teased that the kids know that there's something about him. Lucy knows that there's something about him. And I think she sees that that fragile psyche of his and that he may be susceptible. And he, he eventually does see that light, which plays as we get into the, the third act. And the third act really is where this turns into a horror movie. I mean, it's very psychological up until this point, but then uh, it starts with that. You have Lucy trying to lure Margot into the woods to show her something very maniacally asking her to, to come see something. And then her dad goes off with him and we never, well, we see him later, but we, we think he's gone. Margot goes into the house to find that Ellie is gone. She was grieving over her son. Now, both her and her son are gone and in the room that's when this turns horror because spencer is essentially biting into his mother she's all bloodied there's a scene where margo is is crying over ellie and this is the only time i really had a problem with alicia wainwright's acting is this scene because she just did not do a very good job with fake crying I mean, it felt like fake crying. It, it didn't feel like somebody just lost their best friend. Uh, it, it was the only chink in the armor, the only real problem I had with any of the acting. And, you know, maybe it's something that she's not used to, to playing roles like this, where your best friend has been eaten uh, partially by their child. Uh, <laughs> the gravity of that situation uh, may not have been uh, able to draw from that as much, but I really wish that scene it would have been more powerful if the crying didn't feel so fake again the only real problem i had with the acting in this but the whole thing with lucy coming back after taking her father out into the woods and kind of stalking alicia in the house was all really creepy and done really well for uh, yeah this wasn't a huge budget movie and they didn't have a ton of money for special effects i am sure but the the effects that they did do were effective enough where you see a shadow on the wall and it is this weird buggy uh creepy bug type creature with wings and and long claws and mandibles and then once you see whatever's making this shadow walk up and find that it's lucy just 
looking like regular Lucy. It was really bizarre and creepy. And I'm not a big fan of jump scares, but there's that one scene where Alicia Wainwright's uh, Margot uh, or Margaret is hiding in the closet. And there's that jump scare where Lucy's walking around outside of it. And next thing you know, she's in the closet with her. That was, that was kind of creepy and scary. Uh, ben coming back and finding out that he has seen the light in the hole in that that big cavernous uh, facility uh, and he is now possessed or whatever and we'll, we'll kind of talk about my thoughts of what actually happened uh, because they never really explain it quite well but he's taken over by something as well and and they kind of play into the uh we should start a family and essentially, uh, the the parents are gone. So uh, Spencer and Lucy that are being possessed by whatever it is, uh, they need parents and he's possessed. They want to take her and possess her and they can be a weird alien bug family together in human skins, which kind of led to that scene where uh, they are taking the bodies of of Ellie and Thomas and, and Margot, and you see the kids uh, tossing Ellie and Thomas's body into this hole. I don't know whether it's for them to be eaten, whether it's for them to be possessed by whatever is down there, which kind of led to the creepy ending where Margot escapes. She gets back to the house, drives away, and as she pulls off to the road to, to just take stock and take catalog of all the things that she's gone through and, and finally really get to break down. Now that's a moment where the, her breaking down and crying felt real. All of a sudden you see Ben and Lucy and Spencer walk out from the woods into the middle of the road, holding hands and Ellie decides she's going to end this and, you know, goes hauling ass towards them in the vehicle. And just as she's about to get there, uh, you see Ben with this smile on his face, like something's up. He knows what he's doing uh, or whatever's inside of him knows what it's doing. And then it's cut to black roll credits. And it was such a a weird kind of, but even almost effective, ambiguous end to this that I I didn't hate. And sometimes I hate movies that leave it so open-ended like this when it, it could have had a more substantial ending. I hate movies that don't really tell me enough about what's going on to to really give me some sort of sense of of caring about anything. But this this wasn't like that. Under normal circumstances, I would have wanted to hear more about the lore of of what's going on and, and why this is going on and, and have things explained. I don't need things to be spoon-fed to me, but sometimes I like to have a little bit of an idea of, of what I'm even watching. But this, I, I don't think it needed that because you really find yourself in the position of these characters, uh, Ben in particular, and Margot at the end when they kind of switch protagonists. If you were in this situation, you wouldn't know what the hell was going on either. You wouldn't have all of the exposition of lore and all the stuff going on. You wouldn't have somebody just coming out of the woods to tell you about, Jenna, hear the story about those bug people. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to have that. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm glad this movie didn't have something like this where some character, I mean, we do get a seventh tertiary character uh, show up at the very end but it was really more just to, to add to the body count and it very effectively uh, when the park ranger 
played by Ramona Tyler, shows up at the end and she walks into the house and then goes to walk out and she's knocked to the floor. And then all of a sudden you just see her something obscured by the doorway drags her off. It's it's some some scary stuff. But if they would have just had some park ranger come up out of nowhere and we, we've had reports of missing people because and, and all we've seen are uh, bug wings or, or some shit like that. Some bad exposition, bad dialogue to explain what's going on. I, I would have been pissed off about that because, like I said, if exposition is done right, it can be very helpful. If there's a lore that you need to know uh, to make sense of things, it's always interesting and just adds a, a bigger world to this. But I don't think you needed to have that with this because it didn't matter where these things came from. Uh, we know they come from this hole. There's obviously something that is ancient down in this hole that is probably rarely ever seen by man. It may have been discovered a very long time ago when they broke through the walls of this this building this brick structure uh, maybe the brick structure was created to house it i, I don't know uh, but you're given just enough to to realize there's a backstory they realize there's something going on here that is is bigger than what we're seeing and we're given enough to know about what it is it's obviously some sort of bug creature is it you know terrestrial is it alien i don't know but but I don't think I need to know. It, it's even more creepy not to know where this came from. It, it kind of plays into the whole idea that there are things in the dark reaches of our existence that are beyond the ken of mortal men. And where some movies really do need to have that exposition. They need to have that lore kind of hinted at or even explained or verbalized in some way. Uh, some movies can hold up without that. And I, I really think this does. I don't think you have to know where these came from to know that they are and that they are waiting for, for somebody to come along so they can inhabit their bodies. It, it, this movie very much felt like a cross between that Stephen King short story, Suffer the Little Children, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you haven't read that short story, check it out. If you haven't watched that movie, check it out. And you're a horror fan, uh, so you've probably seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it's probably safe to say you're a Stephen King fan and you've probably read that short story. So you, if you've if read that short story, seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. But yeah, it really did feel like a an amalgamation of those two stories. Uh, Suffer the Little Children and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's some sort of uh, sentient being, whether it be something uh, from the depths of, of earth that has not been discovered or if it's some alien creature uh, come to earth to take over uh, bodies so it can it can live and thrive multiply who, who knows but I don't think we need to know I think we just know enough to to understand that there's something going on we don't have to know exactly what is going on but there's something going on and it's not good. It's very sinister. And the way this ends, who knows? I, I don't know how it ends because like I said, it, it cuts maybe the creatures uh, sprout wings and fly off before 
Margaret can can run into them and then they subdue her and she is taken captive and and made one of these things. I, I don't know. Maybe she does run them over only to find out that they're not dead. It really would be interesting to have seen this played out, uh, this ending played out a little further as to what happens. But but I like that it just it gives you carte blanche to to wonder and to imagine and it really sets the imagination and those, uh, you know, creative juices flowing in your own mind as to trying to to connect that one final dot to see where this ends. And and sometimes I like a movie that does that, gives me the license to go imagine where this story goes from here. Now I don't know if we'd ever get a sequel to this. Uh, I'm okay if we don't. Um, I don't need things explained. But if they did a sequel to it, I think I think that would be kind of cool as well. So ultimately, I did like this movie. Was it perfect? No, it did have some flaws. Uh, the acting wasn't spectacular, but it wasn't bad. Uh, I really did like the the creepiness of the kids. Creepy kid movies are always effective for me because creepy kids are creepy as hell. It had a good amount of scares, but it didn't overdo jump scares. It really allowed the atmosphere and the tension that they created uh, play out to horrific ends that really were effective, kind of giving you a creepy vibe and and scaring you that way without like a shit ton of jump scares that I'm not a huge fan of. Once you get in the third act, there's a, a bit of blood, a bit of gore. My, my only problem with the script, and, and I, I did like the script. Of course, this was written by TJ Kimfell and David White. I, hopefully I'm pronouncing TJ's name correctly, but uh, I, I really like the script. I just, like I said, there were just things that I wish they would have taken either either a little further this way or a little further that way. They felt like they were kind of skirt in the middle. And like I said, the the gaslighting, is he, isn't he crazy, uh, that sort of thing. I think, I, I just wish they would have picked a lane. Either make it all he's not crazy, we know he's not crazy, or, or give us more pause for doubt as to whether his mental faculties are all there. Talking about the Ben character. Uh, there also, I wish there was a little more time in this movie. Like I said, this is about an hour and 30 minutes and I really wish they would have had like 10 minutes, uh, 10 more minutes. I think we could have delved into a little more uh, about these relationships, develop the relationships a little more, develop these kids as creepy kids a little more. Uh, we could have focused a little more on Ben and Margot's relationship and gave a little more credence to his mental problems that he had in the past and and the effect on their relationship outside of a couple lines of dialogue we really don't get any sense of that other than just that this is what happened in the past i just wish this movie had a little more time to flesh out some uh some character development uh, and, and i think that would have uh, done a a great deal to help assuage people's feelings of this movie you know a lot of people are saying they don't get it they want more explanation on the lore uh they don't like the characters they don't uh, feel like the characters are developed enough and i think that would have helped not use that time for for lore or anything like that but i think flesh out these characters a little better and flesh out the story a little better go a little further with some of the things uh, some of the themes of these characters and the states of mind that these characters are in 
But it really did love the atmosphere and the tension that was built with this. Uh, granted, they weren't reinventing the wheel with, you know, the cabin in the woods trope. But uh, I, I like that kind of setting out in the woods, out where there's nobody. You usually get shitty cell service. The dark and the ocean are two things that have always fascinated me because you don't know what's out there and what's underneath the surface. Uh, you In the dark, you don't know what is beyond the uh, expanse of your sight or expanse of the light that is is lighting the way beyond that it's just unknown territory and there's no telling what's lurking in the the dark corners uh, the ocean is the same way or any sort of big body of water the same way uh, you see what's on the surface but there's no telling what is in the depths below that you can't see uh, the woods are are kind of a similar situation you know growing up in in northwest pennsylvania i, I spent most of my summer days running the woods behind my great grandmother's house and and yeah it's you can only see so far uh and you never know what's lurking just beyond this bush or just beyond this tree and and i think that's one of the things that uh you know these cabin in the wood type movies invoke is that sort of fear of the dark sort of situation so to speak uh, so i'd like that even though We've seen a hundred movies where people are isolated in a cabin. Uh, I think that is a very effective place and a very effective setting for horror. So I really liked that aspect of this. Like I said, the tension was fantastic. Uh, the music was a bit awkward. Now I will say, and I mentioned this on Instagram, is this movie started off with the Sisters of Mercy, uh, their song More off the uh, Vision Thing album. One of my favorite albums of all time. One of my favorite bands. Uh, I love Sisters of Mercy, uh, First and Last and Always. Flood, uh, you know, I've just I've been a huge fan of their albums. Uh, I wish they'd come up with something new. Uh, we haven't heard a new S Sisters of Mercy album in decades now. Uh, but anyway, I love the song More. And I was like, oh, okay. This, you know, you're kicking off your movie with the Sisters of Mercy. This can't be a bad movie. Until I thought about the fact that Vision Thing was in the beginning of uh, Showgirls. And then I thought, okay, maybe you can start a bad movie with the Sisters of Mercy song. But but you had the Sisters of Mercy. And then the rest of the soundtrack of this was all... I mean, the music, it says in the credits, is by The Gifted. I don't know if that's a band or whatever. But uh, the, the rest of the soundtrack and the score to this movie, it, it felt kind of akin to the Sisters of Mercy. I think that was a good song to start with because Sisters of Mercy kind of had that goth alt-rock band. And and the movie had a soundtrack that really played into that 80s, 90s goth alt-rock band. And some of the songs sounded really out of place. But in other sections, that goth sound... Uh, when you get some some keyboards and it almost feels like organ music, it, it kind of delved into a gothic horror. And and this, in, in some regards, almost felt gothic in in some regards. Now, I know gothic tales are usually about uh, you know horrors and and ghosts that are. are exposed and, and brought to the light uh this maybe not gothic in the traditional sense but you have this hidden secret that's been locked away that is finally exposed and then when you like i said you get that kind of 80s emo goth alt rock 
sounding music. Uh, sometimes it worked. Other times it didn't. Other times it felt like a fart in a church, just so totally out of place and, and it didn't work. But in, in other regards, in, in some of the scenes, some of the more horrific scenes or some of those scenes that are more like, oh, oh my God, what just happened? It did work. Uh, the gothic nature of the music. So uh, I was kind of uh, on the fence about the the style of music that they chose for this. Like I said, some places it worked, some places it just stood out like a sore thumb and didn't work at all. So ultimately, like I said, I I'm going to be one of those rare reviewers, commentators, whatever you want to call what I do. I, I liked this. It by no means was perfect. And there are definitely things that they could have done better. Uh, they could have done differently. And to, to make this movie feel a little more fleshed out, give me a little more reason to care about some of the characters. I think, uh, like I said, about 10, at least 10 more minutes uh, that would give some time for a little more character development. I think this would have been a much better movie. Like I said, doesn't need to explain what's going on. Doesn't need to explain any sort of lore or anything like that. Because I don't think you needed that. I think you just needed to know a little more about the characters. To care a little more about the characters and what's going on with them. For me, I cared just enough to to get through the end of the movie. And, and hope that everything works out okay. But uh, I didn't really feel as invested in these characters. Uh, especially Ben and Margaret. Uh, I didn't feel as invested in them as I wanted to feel. But ultimately, it's a very good atmospheric movie. It builds on so much tension. And again, I think the 10 minutes could have been used to play on the is he or isn't he crazy as far as Ben goes. I think they could have delved into that. I think they could have ratcheted up what the kids were doing as far as gaslighting him. I think they could have taken it a little further with that. All you needed was just a little more time, I think. But ultimately, I did enjoy the movie, and I did like it, and I'm glad I watched it. So I encourage you uh, to watch it for yourself. You can check it out. Like I said, it's on uh, streaming platforms like Amazon Prime. You can rent it there. Uh, it is going to be on MGM+, Plus, the streaming service that was formerly Epic's. Uh, and you can, you can check it out on there coming up in March. Uh, that's where it's going to be streaming on MGM+. Plus. So if you like creature features that, well, uh, again, and I think another thing is I really wish they would have had the the budget and the effects to go a little more creature feature-y with this. Uh, they, it's a creature feature that never fully uh, shows the creature. And... And if you like that sort of thing, if you like those sort of uh, invasion of the body snatcher type movies where there's some sort of possession from some sort of being, I think you're going to like this. If you like Blumhouse stuff, this is very much a Blumhouse uh, production. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and I think you will too if you just give it a shot and you're not overanalyzing it. I, I think a lot of people out there, a lot of reviewers out there, are so wrapped up in trying to sound intellectual when they're talking about movies and nitpicking them so much that they don't just sit back and and let themselves enjoy a movie. 
Uh, this wasn't a bad movie. It wasn't a great movie, but it wasn't a bad movie. I think it was a pretty good movie and, and a pretty good movie that's worth a watch. So check it out for yourself. See how you feel. Maybe you agree with me. Maybe you're going to absolutely hate it. And that's all right, too. But uh, but check it out for yourself regardless. Don't go by what uh, myself or, or anybody else says about this movie. Uh, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it, and I think it's worth the watch. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in, listening to my thoughts on There's Something Wrong With The Children. Uh, I encourage you to check it out like I did because I really enjoyed it. And we got uh, more coming up on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. And you can find out what all is going down with the podcast on our Facebook page. You can find trailers to the latest movies, as well as articles from all over the internet on horror, fantasy, and science fiction. I like to add my two cents. You can also, where no matter where you listen to this podcast, please uh, leave a review. Five stars would be awesome, but please subscribe to it, like it, uh, download the episode, share the episodes, you know, with anyone you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And uh, until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!